Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Slavery and the City, a three-part series brought to you by the Open City Podcast. This series is about Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade and its legacy embodied in the city of London. The biggest gathering London has seen in weeks and one of the most passionate. embedded in every brick. It's the underside of modernity, right? The reckoning of the contradictions that are at stake, they aren't confronted. Through an in-depth examination of three key buildings in the capital, this series attempts to uncover Britain's role within the black diaspora, how it profited directly and indirectly from the slave trade, and question how architecture continues to convey cultural and social power in 2021. The iconic pediment on the City of London's Royal Exchange depicts a shackled African man kneeling alongside traded commodities. This is our starting point. The Royal Exchange is a Grade 1 listed building, which occupies the symbolic centre of the City of London. Through conversations with experts in Black Studies and African Architecture, this episode is about getting a grip on the architectural grammar of empire and colonialism. These are difficult histories. And indeed, particularly when power, indeed, and finance <laughs> mix. So you cannot separate racism from capitalism. One does not emerge without the other. I'm Selassie Setifer, and this is Slavery in the City. The tipping point came on the 25th of May, 2020, when George Floyd a 46-year-old African-American accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill was killed by police in broad daylight. Incubated by a global pandemic and national lockdowns, the ensuing wave of protests called for an urgent reassessment of the racial inequalities within society. Since the death of George Floyd, we've witnessed public debate on various societal issues unified by systems of discrimination and injustice. One far-reaching consequence has been the debate on architecture and the built environment and how it symbolises and embodies the legacies of slavery, empire and colonialism. In this episode, we're examining how buildings become imbued with cultural significance. I'm Kindy Andrews, Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University and author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. I wanted to find out how we begin to define key terms and mechanisms like empire and colonialism. 
Well, I mean, colonialism simply is when one country controls another country uh, for reasons to, to basically take its resources. I mean, it's always an imbalanced relationship. The purpose of colonialism is that you take from. Um, there's different kinds of colonialism. So Britain, the British Empire, was based on a kind of distance, colonialism at a distance. I and mean, this is when you have empire, when you, you take lots of different countries and you're on them and rule them uh, from afar. And like the British Empire was one of the largest empires in history. At its peak, it was 24% of the entire globe. Um, and, you know, it was just this huge, vast empire. So imperialism is the kind of logic that runs behind empire, right? So you have this big empire, you have an imperial seat of power, and imperialism is the mechanism through which you control through empire, essentially. What are the common mistakes that people make when using these terms? Well, I think the the real problems you have when we think about some all of the terms, colonialism, imperialism, empire, is one, it's about certainly there's colonialism, empire, imperialism is not new, right? So that goes back historically Roman Empire, um, there were empires in Africa. There's, there's always, this has kind of been a feature. So one of the things that we that we do wrong is we relegate the British Empire or Western imperialism, which is the term I use quite quite regularly, um, because the key thing about the West, it really is that it is this combination of Europe. You have their own individual empires, but they kind of combine, if you like, to call what we call the West or Western imperialism, which kind of includes America. And it's this kind of expansive global system. And what we, the wrong thing that we do is we assume that that's in the past, right? That finished. There was a time when the British Empire ended. Considering that Britain still actually has colonies, this is a strange thing to do. Like Britain actually still colonies robbed by Britain. So technically the British Empire still actually legally exists. But more so if you actually think about if the premise of empire is you have a an imperial seat, which could be a country, it could be a set of countries, which governs and controls large swathes of the world or other parts of the world to extract resources, labor, etc., for its own needs. And that hasn't ended at all. I mean, that's still going on. That still exists. It just exists in a different way. So the idea that we can stop, there's a time when empire stops and we're in a different time, that's complete nonsense. The scale of Western imperialism is very different to the scale of empires in ancient times. We're talking about the West being an enormous empire in and of itself that factions off into smaller nation states and their individual empires. Yeah, I mean, that is a big that is a big thing. We say, so you think something like Western imperialism, I mean, that is a big difference. It's not just Britain. It's not just Rome. It's not just one country. It is a collection of, we're going to call them nation states. It is a system which governs literally the entire world now, right? And really importantly, it hasn't ended. It still exists. It still carries on. It just has taken on a different form. So when someone would say, well, like, uh, well, you know, Rome had an empire, that's all well and good. The Roman Empire is done. Like, so slavery in the Roman Empire has nothing to do with today because it's finished, right? But this system uh, of colonialism, imperialism of the West isn't finished. It's the same system. And so everything which happened from slavery to colonialism, even though it was 200 years ago, some of these acts, because the wealth is still with us, um, the system still with us, everything's still with us, the poverty still with us, still, we're still in the same thing. So just so to, I, to imagine that we can just say it's ended and we're no longer responsible is a complete, is complete mess. Where does the term legacy come into this? If we're still in an age of empire, or sort of empire, 
does the word legacy even apply? Yeah, 100%. Like, there are, I guess the legacy of the Roman Empire would be Roman roads, right? That was really strong. Like that, that's a legacy. But you're right. There's no legacy of, of, of the transatlantic slave trade because we're just still in the same system. So legacy really is the wrong way to look at this. History is really the wrong way to look at this as well. But unfortunately, if you actually... That is, that is entirely the way that we understand these things, right? Historians study empire. Historians study slavery. When actually they're still with us, very much still with us in, a, in, a, like in concrete ways, right? Like they haven't in any way disappeared. They're still very much shaping the world today. The relationship between racism and capitalism. We've now touched on some of the terminologies involved in this. The question I want to ask is why haven't we consigned racial exploitation? The qu- mm, I'll start that again. The question I want to ask is why haven't we consigned racial exploitation by capitalist means to history? You think about what the West is. The West is kind of defined by capitalism, right? By that expansion of industry and finance and um, that leads then to democracy, et cetera, et cetera. So capitalism and the West, you can't really separate the two of those things. But you also can't separate capitalism from racism because what is it that defines the West? What is it that makes the West more than anything else? It's racism, right? Like literally without racism, there is no West. It doesn't happen. Capitalism doesn't emerge, which is why 1492 is the year. That's the really important year. It's why Christ- when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and went the wrong way and find the, found the Caribbean. Um, and this, oh, this unlocks, I mean, this really does unlock the West because this allows a place where at the time in the 15th century, Europe was the only place of the part of the world that was in the dark age. Like literally most of the world was way more advanced. Africa was more advanced than Europe. Asia was more advanced than Europe. Even the Americas were more advanced than Europe. Um, and when Columbus takes that wrong turn and unleashes like a, a reign of terror over the Americas, which leads to a genocide, which is the largest genocide in human history. Um, and so if you think about the logic of empire and the logic of the Western empire particularly, it is that white life is sacred and that the lives of black and brown people are disposable. And it starts off, it's kicked off with this huge genocide of the people in the Americas. And that unlocks the door for Europe to expand into the West. Um, then this is where you start to give slavery um, in the Americas. And like I said, at this point, Europe's behind. And it really is first by finding gold and silver in South America uh, and in the Caribbean. This is used to kind of enrich you, you find there's lots of this kind of gold and silver boom that kind of starts to get the way Europe starts to come up a little bit. Then transatlantic slavery uh, is really the thing which unlocks capital. It really is, it generates so much wealth, that triangular trade over 300 years. But that's really the thing which allows you to have the industrial revolution. So if you think about sugar and cotton as being the two most important commodities for industrial revolution, it is not a coincidence that both of those commodities are slave produced commodities. And the wealth that's produced from that, that's what allows capitalism to happen. There is simply no capitalism without that system. And that system is obviously based on racism, right? So you cannot separate racism from capitalism. One does not emerge without the other. My last question is, what do we mean by colonial logic? Um, So colonial logic, in this sense, if you think about the colonialism that we're in, Western imperialism, which is deeply defined by racism and white supremacy, and colonial logic is simply white life, is valuable and black and brown life is not valuable. And again, you can see that play out all around the world today. Um, yeah, so you see this logic of white supremacy effectively where white life is valuable and we can, and you can see that 
the black and brown bodies basically are the are, are the commodities which are used uh, to produce Western progress. First is the genocide. Then if you think about slavery, and one of the things about slavery which people often say is, you know, slavery wasn't really about racism. It just needed some people uh, to exploit. Well, that makes no sense because there were plenty of people they could have exploited in Europe and didn't do this, right? They had indentured laborers from Europe, um, but indentured laborers were treated very, very differently to enslaved Africans. Enslaved Africans were chattel. They were property. They were animals. They could be, you could, I mean, there was, had no rights at all, um, had no legal status. Uh, the case of the Zong, which I think you're going to talk about in the, in the, in the program, uh, the case of the Zong where it just shows you that literally the, in English law, Africans were no more than horses or cattle. That is exactly how it, this was never applied to white people, right? So there's something happening there very clearly about black life and about the disposability of it. And slavery, I mean, it, it so the numbers of people we're talking about, anywhere between the minimum estimate of people who were actually enslaved is 12 million. And then the minimum estimate, again, of how many people died, it's about twice the amount of people died in the process of being enslaved as actually were enslaved. That's at least 36 million. And that's a low estimate, right? And this is for three centuries. And so, and you can just see the devaluation of black life. And in terms of trying to understand now why we're in the situation we're in, where black people are more likely to be killed by the police, more likely to be restrained, um, and mental health service, etc. There is no way to see that any any outside of how black bodies were treated um, during slavery, right? And then if you and then it, it's not like slavery ends and this is all good. We, we will finish with this once our bodies have been disposed and used, and there's new systems of oppression. Uh, what do you see? You have this hundred years of colonialism where the wealth from places like Africa is just ripped out of the continent. And there's no, there's a book by Walter Rodney where he says how Europe underdeveloped Africa. So for a hundred years after slavery, you then have Europe just taking out resources, not building any infrastructure, etc., and then leaves and then leaves the continent in a, a really terrible state, which again explains why Africa is still poor today. And then if you think about coming to the modern times now, when you think about where all your clothes are made. Um, and why are our clothes and why all our clothes and our goods are made in places like China and India, etc.? It's because they are on starvation wages, wages that we would never accept in the West, right? So even now, this idea that it's fine to exploit and to abuse black and brown bodies um, so that us in the West can have success. And really, this hasn't changed. And the, the thing I always point people to is to look at GDP, uh, gross domestic product per capita, and which is a kind of measure of how poor and rich countries are. Africa is the poorest part of the world by a distance, uh, sub, what they call sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the West, a developed world where white people live, is the richest. And then you have this hierarchy in between, which means we've literally created the world in the image of white supremacy today. That's not 100 years ago. That's, not, that's, that's literally right now um, and explains why 9 million people around the world die each year from poverty and hunger, and basically all of those people are black and brown, but we say very little about this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're going to pick up these ideas about economic imperialism in our globalized world throughout this series. In the meantime, let's bring the focus back to the City of London. I'm joined now by Merlin Fulcher, fellow co-host of the Open City podcast, who can provide context on what the epicentre of the British Empire was. Hi Merlin, can you start by giving us a brief introduction? What is the City of London and where are its boundaries? So the City of London is the ancient administrative centre of the capital. Uh, It occupies roughly the site of London's original Roman settlement, Uh, but today it's a central business district strongly associated with financial services such as banking and insurance. Um, Although the City of London predates the rise of empire and imperialism during the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, uh, its power and global influence grew significantly uh, in this same period. And much of this wealth generation came from enterprises within the square mile, which directly and indirectly benefited from slavery and indentured labour in the West Indies, the Americas and elsewhere. Can you tell us about the building's purpose, as well as its history? It's one of the few places in the capital where royal proclamations, such as births and deaths, are ceremonially read aloud. You know, that's kind of how significant it is. Uh, the building was created by Thomas Gresham in the mid-16th century. Gresham was an important merchant in Antwerp when it played a key role in harnessing the profits of the early slave trade to advanced early capitalism and he wanted to create a similar venue uh, where London could take over that hegemony. So the building we see today was designed by William Tite in the 1840s and replaced an earlier trading house on the same site. That earlier trading house stood at the epicentre of global finance at a time when slavery was central to Britain's fortunes. What role does the building play now Merlin? So the Royal Exchange, as it is now, um, it has shops arranged around a covered courtyard and it's been transformed into an upmarket food, beverages and retail centre. I think the building is very significant, uh, especially with regard to this series. And that's because 
of its pediment. Um, the pediment, like the rest of the building, uh, was built after the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in 1833. Uh, but the pediment is notable uh, because it features in it an image of a black African man in shackles kneeling alongside other commodities. So why is this man depicted there? Is he depicted there because it's representative of what was going on in the building or or acknowledging the fact that the building's purpose and use was in line or linked to slavery and the slave trade? Or is it something that's put there for more violent reasons to further perpetuate slavery and, and seeing black people as commodities? It's exactly these grey areas, these ambiguities, I wish to interrogate. How do we begin to read architecture which physically embodies Britain's role within the transatlantic slave trade? How should we classify buildings like the Royal Exchange? Do we start by defining this as colonial architecture? Well, I mean, that's I guess, a loaded question. Hi, I'm Olo Duku. I'm a research professor in architecture at the Manchester School of Architecture. I have an interest in minority communities and urban centres in both the North and the South. I began by asking Ola how buildings like the Royal Exchange come into existence and why ornamental details like the kneeling slave become immortalised in bricks and mortar. As the money comes in, the those who have made their money and created the wealth create these both houses and also these trading trading places. So, you know, even the exchanges and so on that we talk about in London that I know you've been looking at, you have the same kind of exchanges in places like Liverpool. And indeed, at certain points, Liverpool is probably richer than London because of the amount of um, money that comes in through this illegal trade. And this then becomes representational as well. So the buildings become big, much, much bigger. If, if we think about Liverpool being a very small city, probably Chester at the time was, was bigger than it, it was before it sort of got really involved in the trade. So the buildings become incredibly large, grandiose, and then the representation in terms of decoration and or- ornamentation begins to show, if you like, where the money came from, <laughs> which at that time clearly was something that was, well, I don't know, I guess it was something to be boasted about until the um, the abolitionist lobby began to, make, to, um, to um, challenge that. And you find the same thing. I mean, I went down to Marseille for a conference. And if you go down to the, the main bit where the, where the, the port is in Marseille, again, the, the historic Marseille, you see the same thing. Large um, buildings, people in chains. And, you know, that's, that's the way in which a lot of the representation and, and decoration at the time um, manifested itself in these buildings. So the richer sort of these nations, these cities, these towns got, the more... Um, the more they embellish their buildings to, to, to sort of communicate where their wealth was generated from. Yeah, and I guess you could say that what's happened with um, the, last, the events of the last year is that, you know, there's been that challenge to these buildings that have been there for, you know, yonks. Uh, and also what's happened, of course, with time passing is there's been a historical amnesia. That's a word I quite like, you know, so the buildings are there. And nobody's asking too many questions about what's actually on them and is there any link? So there's that D-link. Certainly I'm old enough to have been brought up actually in Scotland and all we ever got told was that, again, Britain was one of the first countries to abolish the slave trade. I had no real idea about the, the sugar trade and its link to 
and the tobacco trade in, in, in Glasgow. I mean, there had been some talk indeed about some parts. I think Liverpool particularly, I think has, there's been a long understanding about its links, but there are other cities as we're finding out now that have had links as well. So there's that amnesia thing about the, the buildings are there, but the, the provenance of the ornament and so on is often much more difficult to find out about or has become over time. Thanks for that. I think the next question kind of linked to that as well is, is, is this, um, when we speak about dominant ideologies and how they become embedded within the built environment, you speak about this amnesia. Do you think, first of all, do you think these dominant ideologies matter and them, and them being embedded in the built environment, do you think they matter? And if you do think that, why? If you don't, also why? <laughs> Well, I think definitely uh, the way we see history is always influenced by what the dominant um, state is. So I'm going to take you back the other way. So, I mean, I was brought up partly in Scotland and partly in Nigeria. And in Nigeria, oftentimes as well, there's a bit of amnesia about the slave trade. So the idea about there being middlemen and so on isn't fully explained. Um so it depends on where you are, on what side of the coin you are, as to what you understand as your history. And history at its best should be giving an equal and balanced view about, you know, what has happened over time. So it should neither, it should, shouldn't, um, it shouldn't promote one side over the other, but we should be able to have an understanding about the things that happened and those, the players and the characters. And in some ways, um, one should try to keep as level an understanding as to what was happening as is possible, which is very difficult, definitely. But the idea about there being right and wrong is obviously in the eyes of which side of the discussion you're having, you're, you're looking at the activities. So I think the idea about the dominant culture is always going to be difficult because, you know, nations always tell their stories. We all have narratives, but the point is to include in the narrative the other bits of the stories that are often sometimes, um, I think often, t- what's the word? They're, they're often overlooked or indeed there is um, chosen amnesia around certain narratives if it doesn't fit into the ways in which we like to see ourselves. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's much more, um, diff- it's a tricky thing to, to balance. But I think certainly what's happening is that over time, as we become much more global, these stories are becoming much more to the fore than they were, say, 20, 30 years ago, because the information is there. And you can go to various archives now and find out things. So even if the national history says one thing, you can look through the archives and find out what the other histories have said about that same time. So your viewing of a place in time is very much framed by your understanding and the contexts from which you're coming to the story. Do you think that architecture in our cities can give credence to the complex context, power play and stories of our past? Okay, I definitely feel that buildings do have a place in giving us a good context to our cities because generally people look at buildings, but the the buildings they look at tell different stories. But if those buildings are better contextualised and if people understand what these buildings uh, what the, what role these buildings have in history, in our histories, they would have a better understanding of the histories of the places in which they live. So, for example, um, could give an example in, actually Nigeria would be a good one. There was a prison of, yeah, 
the, the site of the original prison that was built indeed in colonial times. And indeed it included, it was a place that also had a, a, a garret for hanging and so on. Um, it was closed and for about 30 years it just disappeared. But then an architect, a colleague whom I know, um, was able to um, be was able to take the land or sort of take the lease of the land from the Nigerian government and turn it into what's called the Freedom Park. So by doing that, he opened up that space, which again had these histories of imprisonment and so on, and turn it into a park that was open that is open to the public, and it also tells a story about what that space had been now again which is the issue about how land values change generally in a place like lagos land is a bit like london a developer would have rather put a really expensive high um whatever 16-story building on that space but by if you like rescuing that site um with that um intention or with with an intention of um both turning it into something that had public interest and also was able to tell the history you've got a much better way in which the site then gives that history back to the people. So it's so to me, that sounds like it's a lot to do with a conscious effort to bring that history through whatever programme it is that you bring to that building. It doesn't necessarily have to be used for what it was used for or intended for in the first instance. Um, but as history progresses, trying to reframe and rethink what the purpose of that building is and how you can tell its source history i think is quite important um that's correct i mean there are custodians of culture which again we whom we often forget and the point would be to actually work with those who remember these histories and indeed if there are buildings places and so on i guess it's partly the intangible to culture um being um put in direct contact with the tangible culture so the beauty, again, about the prison is that it's in people's lifetimes. So my mother is actually 92 and she can remember when it was a prison. So you've still got those who remember the histories, albeit maybe just orally. And then you've got actually got the physical space. So you, if you can put them together, then you really have something that I think communities can connect with. My takeaway is that it's incredibly important that we continue to question. We need to continue to question our histories rather than simply accept what has been taught to date. It is evident that we have not been taught the whole truth about much of our histories. Without the unveiling and in-depth understanding of all sides, whether they are right, wrong, immoral or just, how can we ever confront the past, learn from it, hold people to account or ensure the end to systemic discrimination and injustices? These ills were seeded in the age of the slave trade, but are very much still alive today. Many of these buildings still stand and are still in use. Are their full stories being told? Are they being used to uphold systems of discrimination and injustice? How are they actively contributing to dismantle systems of discrimination and injustice? In the next episode of this three-parter, we're using the City of London's famous Guildhall to put collective amnesia on trial. I'm Selassie Setifer, and you've been listening to Slavery and the City. This episode has been produced in partnership with the City of London Corporation as part of its drive to tackle racism in all its forms. 
Its Tackling Racism Task Force is leading this work, assessing what further action the City Corporation can take to promote economic, educational and social inclusion, and considering how to respond to the historical issues such as statues and monuments. You can find out more at ourcitytogether.london. If you'd like to hear our full interviews with Kayindi Andrews and Ola Aduku, sign up to become an Open City friend and you will be able to access the full interviews with Selassie and all the amazing contributors for the series. For one twenty-five a week, you can support the hosting costs of the Open City podcast, helping to keep conversations about the city open, honest and accessible. Alongside the Open City podcast, we have The Lundown, our weekly roundup of the week's top London architecture news. Tune in every Thursday morning with Merlin Fulcher and a roster of special guests. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.